I encourage you, if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 23, and I would encourage you over these Sunday nights to make sure you have a, a Bible with you in paper form or electronic form uh, to be able to follow along. Uh, one of my mentors uh, used to say when he was preaching, it's, it's lovely to see people looking up at me when I'm preaching. It's even better to see them looking down at their Bibles as well. So we're looking tonight at this under the title, Unfaithful Teachers. Uh, I know we have some teachers with us here tonight, and all of us have different memories of our teachers at school. Uh, I've got to say, most of my teachers at school, I have lovely memories of them. Uh, Some of them had a really good influence on my life. Uh, There's one or two of them. Uh, probably should have been in prison, and there are one or two others who were just useless uh, at their job. Uh, but we have t- different experiences of teachers uh, that as we grow up. Well, Jesus is speaking about teachers here, religious teachers in Israel. Now, as we return to Matthew, we come to a period of intense debate and controversy between Jesus and the religious teachers in Israel. In Matthew 21, we have the so-called triumphal entry when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And following that, we have Jesus cleansing the temple, which really raises the stakes in this confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. One of the great focuses of Matthew's gospel is how Jesus is the rightful king. Remember, it began in Matthew 1 with that line from King David proving that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. He's the rightful king who has come to claim his kingdom. But with such teaching, there is tremendous kickback from the Jewish religious leaders. And Jesus doesn't just let that pass. He responds to them with some very direct and at times some very cutting teaching. Now, controversy and confrontation are things that Christians should never look for or enjoy. Yet, following the example of Jesus, there are times when it can't be avoided. Jesus, in this passage, he has the scribes and Pharisees in his sights because they were such a hindrance to his work of building the kingdom. They were holding the people back from the kingdom. These people were very unfaithful teachers. And what we're going to do tonight is to focus on four things that they were lacking as teachers. And I have to say, uh, I had four points which I'd worked out, and then I heard the Reverend Eric Alexander, and his points were better than my points, so gone to his points. So four things that they were lacking. First of all, they were lacking integrity in verses 1 to 3. Jesus begins by speaking of why the scribes and the Pharisees should be obeyed. In verse 2 he says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. Now Moses' seat has to mean the place of judgment and teaching over the people of Israel, which Moses once occupied. The people who Jesus is now speaking to, they have to respect the important position that the scribes and the Pharisees had. 
irrespective of their many faults and failings, irrespective of sin in their lives, they still had a great responsibility to respect the position and to respect what they heard. There is a parallel, and I'm not sure if it's still in the call that's made out to Presbyterian ministers, but when people would call a minister, they promised to respect and support that minister for his work's sake. That's recognizing he has a God-given role, and they need to, because of that, be willing to respect and support the minister in it. Now that's important because the devil will always seek to undermine the role of gospel ministry. He will, if you look at the way you see it portrayed on television, uh, such things as Father Ted or the vicar of Dibley and things like that, portraying ministers and folk in a very weak and laughable way. That's always part of the devil, to diminish the role of gospel ministry. And sadly, the critical spirit among church members can really assist the devil in what he's seeking to do. He's always seeking to undermine biblical ministry because the devil knows faithful Bible teaching is the way that Christ's kingdom will grow and extend. And he will do whatever he can to turn people against such ministry. Now Jesus puts a, a balance on what he says about indeed listening to and obeying what the religious leaders Say. It says in verse 3 So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. Sadly, these men, in this important teaching role, they lacked integrity. And there was a tremendous gulf between what they preached and how they lived. Now, one of the most important things for our congregations today is that those of us who are ministers, those who are elders, those who are leaders and teachers in our organizations, that we're not just people who share God's word, but we're people who live it out in a life of holiness. Now, let's be honest, this side of glory, there will always be a gap between what we teach and what we practice. But it should always be our passion that that gap will close and close. Because if there is that visible gap between what we teach and practice, it will really diminish our ministry. The other night, I was putting our dog to his bed. And uh, when I put the dog to bed, I just said to him, uh, Ollie, cage. Now, the problem was the other night when I was saying Ollie Cage, uh, Cherif was still sitting in the living room. So he looked at me when I said Ollie Cage, and he ran and sat at Cherif, looked up at Cherif as if to say to me, you're putting me to Cage when she's not going to her bed. Uh, how does that work? There's a bit of a contradiction there, and he was trying to get away with it. Now you think of this, if we're teaching our children, our young people, our adults, about being devoted to Christ. And then they see a minister, or they see elders, organization leaders, who are not devoted to Christ and the things of God, who at best at times are lukewarm. They'll be like our dog and think, are you serious that I have to do this? All our people, and particularly our children and young people, 
they can spot contradiction. We sing all for Jesus. But do we live it out? When it comes to decisions about being at the evening services, when it comes to decisions being at our prayer meetings and Bible studies, when it comes to how we treat people in our conversations and how we behave outside, can it be seen then it's all for Jesus? And these unfaithful teachers, there was a lack of integrity. But the wonderful thing in all these things that are lacking this evening They were never lacking in the life of Jesus. Isn't it wonderful as Jesus was on trial and as false witnesses were brought to bring accusations against Jesus, they couldn't agree, they couldn't really get it to work because his life was a life of such integrity. And we think of how he came before that pagan Roman governor Pilate who naturally would have known Sympathy for Jesus. And even he could say, There's no, I find no fault in this man. Isn't it wonderful we have a saviour such integrity? And we need to feed in him and grow through him. Lacking integrity. The second thing their ministry was lacking was lacking sympathy in verse 4. Jesus says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Now, the picture here is what would happen in the Middle East of loading a donkey with bundle after bundle after bundle until the poor thing's legs were near gone. It had such a heavy load, and as it would stumble along its master, instead of helping it and trying to carry it through, would just rebuke it and be very critical towards it. The problem with the scribes and Pharisees in how they taught, they taught the tremendous requirements of the law, but they hadn't anything in their teaching about the grace of Christ that is necessary in our lives to keep those requirements of the law. It's never enough just to teach the law. When the requirements of God's law are taught, as they must be taught, they need always to be taught in the context of the gospel. This is important for those of you who teach in Sunday school. It's never just a matter of teaching commandments. It always has to lead to the gospel. We must always teach the law's requirements, reminding people that where we have all failed... In keeping them, Christ succeeded. Down to the very last stroke and little dot of the law, he kept it all perfectly. And so when we put before people the requirements of the law, one of the ways we stop them from just being broken by it is to point to how Jesus has fulfilled it. We preach the demands of the law and how the law needs to be lived out in our lives today. But always in the setting of how Jesus, through the gospel, gives us power in order to live and to keep this law today. You see, just emphasizing commandments isn't enough. In Colossians, the book of Colossians, in chapter 2, towards the end of Colossians 2, 
Paul talks about the danger of just being caught up in, in rules. And Colossians 2 and verse 20 to 23 talks about caught up in rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And that's the way some of the, the believers in Colossae were now being caught up of just a matter of rules. And so he says, do not be just caught up with these rules and listen to these rules. And instead he goes on to chapter 3, and this is what he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things in the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, the way to live the Christian life is not just looking at the rules, it's looking to heaven, it's to look to Christ and to find the grace in Christ to live to please the Lord. And so, in taking them from the laws, the commandments, in taking them to Jesus, focus on Jesus, then Paul goes on and says, put to death, therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, uncovenness, and so forth. You see the point? They were getting it wrong. They were concentrating first on the rules. Where Paul teaches, focus on Jesus. Focus on him. And then sin will be dealt with in your life. It is the power of the gospel. It is a, a relationship with Jesus Christ who was crucified and who has risen that empowers people to live a different life. Last Sunday morning here in Brookside, we were looking at Acts 19 and the tragic but also amusing story of the sons of Sceva. These seven brothers who tried to copy Paul in exercising demons out of people. And a man who had these demons ended up turning on them and says, Jesus we know, Paul we know, who are you? And gave them a right hiding and they had to run for their lives naked. They had ritual but not relationship. It's a relationship with Christ that is the crucial thing in being able to follow the, the calling and the commandments of the Lord. You know, as we think of the scribes and Pharisees who are described as teachers who just put extra burden after extra burden on the people, it just reminded me of that passage in Matthew 11 where Jesus is such a contrast. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And the picture there is like two people being under the yoke, the way oxen were. Jesus sees a struggling, he says, Come under the yoke of me. Let me go beside you. Let me carry you through. Let me take the weight. Lacking sympathy. Oh, that was true of the scribes and the Pharisees. But never of Jesus. Thirdly, lacking reality. Here in verse 5. In verse 5 it says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad, and their fringes long. Now, the way the scribes and Pharisees behaved was to draw attention to themselves. 
But the truth was that they were not living in the real world in regards to what God was thinking. In their lives, there was so much that was pretense in order to gain the praise of others. They had become actors putting on a show. And remember that the Greek word for actor is the word hypocrite. But let's look a wee bit closer here in verse 5 at their pretense. It says halfway down verse 5, For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Their phylacteries refer to that small black cube-shaped case that they would wear on their hands and arms and maybe on their foreheads in which was put a portion of scripture. The idea comes from Deuteronomy 6 where the Lord encourages people to bind his word to their, to their minds and to, indeed, to their hearts. What the Lord was wanting is that God's word would control our lives, that God's word would consume our lives. But these people thought just by tying a bit of scripture onto themselves, that was fulfilling this. And the important thing, of course, is not having a Bible verse tied to you, but rather it is living with your heart and mind controlled by scripture, filled with scripture, guided by scripture. Uh, Probably today what would be similar to this would be people wearing a cross. But people who are absolutely godless in how they live. And of course the important thing is not wearing a cross or not wearing it. The crucial thing is trusting in the Jesus of the cross and dying to self day by day. But these religious leaders, they thought, having a wee bit of scripture tied to me, I'll look good. That fulfills things. They made these phylacteries, which were normally quite small, they were making them really, really big so that no one could miss it. It reminds me, uh, part of growing up in Uri, uh, on uh, Ash Wednesday when people would get the cross on their foreheads, uh, some of the fairly ardent ones would get a marker to put around the cross to emphasize you never miss it uh, when they had it there. And this is what they did with emphasizing, making it really big. The other thing we refer to are their fringes, which refers to the tassels that were on the corner of their prayer shawls. They were making these particularly long, again to draw attention to themselves so people think, well, that's a very spiritual, that's a very holy person. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke of how they loved to pray on the street corners. A certain time of day, they would hear the trumpet from the temple calling people to pray, and they would make sure that when the trumpet would sound, they would be in the most visible of places, street corners and marketplaces, so people would see them pray. The Lord wants us in regards to his word, in regards to our praying, not to be people pleasers, but God pleasers. Eric Alexander, I love his preaching. I listen to his preaching regularly. I recommend tapes from Scotland online. You can listen to Eric Alexander, tremendous preacher. As a young man of 27, he preached for the first time at the Keswick Convention. He was very nervous. And at that convention, he sought out a very experienced and godly believer 
And he asked this believer, can you give me one piece of advice for gospel ministry? And the reply was just two words. Be real. Be real. Be real with people. Be real before God. Now in regards both the word of God and prayer, Jesus never put on a show and he spoke all as against putting on a show. But Jesus had a genuine passion for these means of grace. You think of Jesus as a young boy. When Mary and Joseph lost him on the way back from Jerusalem, it says they found him on the third day. I don't know whether that was the third day since they realized he was lost or was indeed the third day from the start. We don't know. Either he was three or four days in the temple constantly talking to the religious leaders, asking them questions and learning from God's word. Young people, listen to that. A 12-year-old boy, three or four days, constantly learning about God's word. He had a passion for God's word. And that can be seen when he was tempted by the devil, where he constantly quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. And when in regards to prayer, he spent nights in prayer, whole nights praying to his heavenly father. So it's not our job to tie phylacteries or Bible verses to ourselves or to pour some sort of prayer shawl. We should desire a Christ-like passion for the word of God and the place of prayer. This is how we become real people in an increasingly false and superficial world. This world outside, there's so much pretense, there's so much falsehood. What this world is, and they see people, people who are real in Christ. And that's what we should long for. These scribes and Pharisees, they weren't real. But Jesus was and continues to be. The fourth lack, the final lack, is humility in verses 8 to 12. Here Jesus mentions three names that the religious leaders love to be called by. First of all, in verses 7 to 8, rabbi. A rabbi was someone qualified to be a religious teacher. In verse 9, they love to be called father in the sense of a spiritual father. And in verse 10, they wanted to be called instructors. Uh, King James uses the word master. The new King James uses teacher. The word instructor there literally means someone who guides. Now Jesus has been critical of these religious leaders, always seeking to have honor placed upon themselves. They like the prestige, they like the limelight of their position. Now, for those of us in any such of position of authority or responsibility, leadership and teaching, it can be a very dangerous place. For those who like the attention to be on themselves. And the problem, and this is the big problem with such pride, is Jesus says here that people are seeking to substitute themselves for God. It is seeking to put us in a place that should rightfully belong to the Lord. This is the very heart of pride. And this is why pride is so dangerous. It is seeking to replace what should be God with 
ourselves. Look what he says here in verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. Who's the one teacher? God. Verse 9. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Verse 10. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Here were people who were seeking to take upon themselves honor and prestige, which is due to the Lord alone. They were proud. They were full of themselves. They wanted attention on themselves. And the reason for that was they never had experienced grace. They never had come to understand their great need of Christ and salvation. If they truly had come to understand the gospel, they wouldn't have been like this. Being proud, being full of ourselves, is not the way of Jesus. Think of those very familiar words in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he is in the form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped or or to be held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So here were a people who were so caught up in themselves. Look how wonderful I am. I deserve all this honor. I deserve all this praise. Jesus, the one who deserved the honor and the praise, who deserved all the accolades, he humbled himself and became a servant. This is the very thing Jesus espouses here. Look at verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humble, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This servant spirit, which Jesus is calling us to to mimic, we can only get it in him. It's by understanding our sin. It's by understanding the gospel. It's about growing in a relationship with Christ that we feed and Christ's humility and humble nature becomes more and more a part of us. The more we come secure in a relationship with Christ, the more it grows, the humbler we'll become. You think of Moses. Described as the meekest man on the face of the earth. Why was Moses so meek? It was because he had come to know the Lord in such an intimate way. You think of the upper room where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. I love this. I I repeat this record. In John 13 and 3 it says this. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. That he had come from God and was going back to God. In other words... He was secure in his relationship with his father. Rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Why did he do it? 
because he was secure in that loving, fulfilling relationship with God the Father. And the more and more we're secure in our relationship with Jesus, the more and more we have hearts of worship because of the gospel, the more and more will this humility fill our lives. We'll have such a servant spirit towards others. Four things they were lacking. Integrity, sympathy, reality, humility. We have to measure ourselves up and ask, have we those things or are we lacking those things? But let us rejoice that when it came to integrity, sympathy, reality and humility, we have a saviour who overflowed with such wonderful qualities. Let us pray. Father, we want to thank and praise you for all your love, your goodness towards us. We thank you for this passage. And while it's a passage which reveals the sin and the failings of the scribes and Pharisees, Father, the flip of this is that it reveals the wonder and the beauty of Jesus. Oh, Father, we praise you for a saviour of such integrity. A saviour who not only preached what we should do, but a saviour who could pray to his father before he died that he had fulfilled all that the father had given to do. A saviour of such wonderful sympathy and a saviour who doesn't call us to follow and to keep the commandments without also giving us the grace and the help we need. A saviour who had such reality, who never put on pretense or show, but a saviour who was real and real as a son of God, real as a saviour of the world. A saviour with such humility, who had come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Father, forgive us for where we lack integrity, sympathy, reality, and humility. Lord, just draw us close to Christ and even draw us to Christ this evening, maybe for the very first time. And through a growing and deepening relationship with him, we will grow in his integrity, sympathy, reality, and humility. Oh, Father. For such grace we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.